Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. As a leader, you ask questions. You ask your team questions. You ask potential hirees questions, your customers, your peers, sometimes even your competitors. Just stop and think about the number of times each day you ask someone for information that you need to know. Now, what if the source of that information isn't exactly forthcoming in the way you could hope? How can you ask in a way that allows you to find out anything from anyone? And today we're going to talk about the techniques of real life master interrogators, as opposed to what you see in the movies. And more importantly, we're going to talk about the implications for you as a caring leader, not as a harsh interrogator, a caring leader who's looking for answers. My guest today is Marianne Karench, and she's the author of 33 commercially published books. Man, I just want you to hear that again, 33 published books most of which focus on human behavior. She's co-authored many of them with subject matter experts, including a former CIA clandestine officer and two former decorated army interrogators, one of whom is James Pyle, her co-author for Find Out Anything from Anyone, Anytime, as well as Control the Conversation. She was elected to the membership in the Explorers Club in 2010, in part because of her adventures focused on understanding responses to the human psyche in extreme conditions. She's one of the few women to have completed the inaugural Eco Challenged. She's an experienced skydiver, a whitewater kayaker, and she holds an open water certification in scuba and is a former pilot. As if all of that's not enough. Okay, Marianne, I don't know how you do 33 books and an adventure lifetime, but welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. I can tell you one of the secrets is that you don't have children. Ah. <laughs> or maybe it is that sometimes children push you to do other things because you need an escape. There's all sorts of they reasons. They can do that do too. That. Right. <laughs> Okay, so you've written lots of books, as I said. I'm admiring of 33, in spite of my tongue-in-cheek uh, teasing you about it, with lots of experts. Why did you choose this topic about interrogation? You've written a couple of them on this. Right. I met Jim Pyle through Greg Hartley, with whom I'd written already eight books on human behavior, primarily lie detection and body language. And uh, Jim had designed the questioning program for the uh, military intelligence, the, the interrogation school. And we talked about combining his expertise with mine and just said it's a natural collaboration. Okay. So, so he's the interrogation expert, but you're the expert on human behavior, particularly when you're in extreme conditions. So that's right. what you do. And I know you've written a lot of books on body language as well um, and on how people work in these crazy situations. Is, am I getting that in, as an accurate description of you? Right. Well, it's not just how they behave within the situation, but how they prepare for it. Okay. And how they come off of it. 
because this isn't just about being an adrenaline junkie. This is about exploring. This is about overwhelming curiosity to find answers to what is this going to be like? How, how will this feel? And what am I going to learn from it? Who am I going to do it with? Okay. Okay. So if I take that back to other places, when I've talked to people about resilience, I hear an awful lot of conversations, a lot of uh, research saying that you have to do it for your own reasons. You have to have your own purpose, your own mission behind it, whatever you're doing, whether it's extreme sports, it's Olympic class sports, or it's some event that you're trying to bounce from, bounce back from, that all of those are down to what is in it for you. Why are you interested in this topic? And that's what you're saying is the same thing. Sort of how do you prepare for and how do you come off of? Right. All right. Okay. Well, let's shift to our main topic, which is I want to talk about interrogation and the first step. So what's the first step? Even before you prepare the question, what is it that you're doing before you start asking a question? You have to know what you want to find out. Your main preparation is what information do you want and need? And then after that main preparation, it's clear what you're trying to find out. Then who is the person who's going to give you that information and in what context? Okay. So your preparation then would be knowing something about that person. Okay. All right. So give me, it sounds so simple. I know what I want to find out, but you and I know that people ask questions all the time badly and they don't get the kind of information they're looking for. So when you're thinking about interrogating somebody, kind of what, how do you know if you've really thought carefully enough about what you're looking to find out? Is there any tricks in that one? It, it, a lot depends on the context. If it's a job interview, you know that you you want to find something out about the person's skills, personality, preferences, and things like that. So you have a, a, a sphere in that yeah. you're operating in. If it's a law enforcement situation, there's been a crime committed. So the sphere is something having to do with that crime. And the, and the person that you're talking with knows something about that. You may not know exactly what, but you know the sphere of, uh, of, of the subject. Okay, so I've got some context, some ideas of where I'm driving. I know what it is I'm hoping to find out from this particular person. And then I've got to know a little bit more about that person. So what do I need to know about that person, for example? Right. Well, if you don't know anything about the person and you're just, you're just meeting, then the first thing you want to do is is break the ice somehow. And the, the question can be specific enough. Let's say you're from Florida and you're interviewing for a job and over a Zoom call. And I say to you, how did that hurricane affect you? I find out something about you because I ask you a question that's specific enough and caring enough so that you want to tell me what happened? Maybe you weren't affected at all. Maybe you were, and then you start talking, and I learn something about you. Another thing could be that I just make a comment about, thanks for being early, Wanda. I, I, I have had a really busy day today, and I appreciate that, that, that you did that. And then you know something about me, which is that I appreciate it, and you might tell me, well, my dad was a Marine, and, and so I'm always a little early. Right. 
So it's that small, we often call it small talk, but it's small talk that actually becomes important talk. It is. It's very important because you want to, if you want somebody to tell you the whole story and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, you need trust. And those rapport building exercises build a trust, a trustful connection. Okay. I love that. A trustful connection. That's a great, um, a great way of saying it. All right. Now you do this in some very interesting ways. So you'll know one thing about the person that you're talking to, and you'll know something that has happened in their world. And you'll ask, how does that impact you? Or were you impacted by this? Or you give a compliment or you notice something else about somebody and make a comment like you and I were just chatting before the call started and was commenting about the map that is sitting behind you. And I learned something about you by just commenting about the colors in the map. It's noticing and then making a connection as a result and then presumably listening. Anything else that you would add to that or is that just the basics? Those are definitely the basics that whatever you can do to get to know the person instead of just occupying um, space next to each other, build a connection, build a bridge. That's what you want. All right. So that means I need a tiny bit of homework in advance of the conversation. Right. Most occasions I get a chance for that. There are very few where suddenly I'm meeting somebody and I know nothing about them. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So I've done a little bit of preparation. I've thought about what I, what this person might know that I want to know about. I've got my sphere that I'm interested in. We've done a little bit of rapport. How do I know when there's enough rapport? I mean, like, how long should I go on with that? You can judge it based on the person's um, natural automatic responses to you. For example, when you feel that you have some kind of rapport with somebody, you'll mirror that person. It's natural. Some people try to fake it and it, and it looks fake. But really, when you're, when you're in tune with somebody, you have a natural way of kind of tilting your head or turning your body that says, hey, I'm with you. And when you feel that and when you observe it, then you can move on to other things. Okay. So mirroring. Um, I've talked a lot about Alex Pentland's research on this particular topic, that people literally, when they're in sync with you, literally mimic your body behaviors, the turn of your head, the angle of your um, hand, the fact you're leaning forward or you're leaning back or you're sitting sideways in the chair. I mean, they literally mirror that and you can see it. And it's a way of knowing that you've got some connection. Well, there are other verbal ways that people do that too. You and I have the same energy level. We're we're chatting away. And that is another sign that you're together. Okay. All right. Mirroring energy. Any third ones or are those the two that you tune into? They're the primary ones, I think. And uh, another a subtle one might be just a, a sense of enjoyment that you know, that there's a smile occasionally, that there's a little glint in the eyes, and, and that you can tell that there is an enjoyment of being with that person and having the chat. Okay. All right. Now, most of the people I coach are now ready to steer towards the question. So they've done the rapport building, and they struggle with how do I go from this nice, lovely, easy conversation to <laughs> asking the question I really want to know. So do you have any tricks for shifting to the conversation or the question? Sure. Actually, you do it very well. Uh, You, at the beginning of our conversation here, 
did something we call framing. You, you framed your subsequent questions by doing an introduction, by welcoming me to the show, by, you know, making sure that there was a setup for what we were going to talk about. So you, you framed things. Uh, that kind of an introduction is a natural setup for then getting to the meat of what you're there for. Okay. All right. Uh, and I find, um, for me at least, when I'm talking with people, whether it's a coaching client or a new client or here on the show, either way, I do a little bit of the chit chat and I'm kind of at that restless point where I'm ready to get the substance. And I just literally shift gears like, okay, let's talk about something different or, okay, let's get to the theme that we had focused on. So I, I just flag it and move in that direction. Right. Um, so nobody's ever reacted badly for it. So I think I think it works okay, but I don't know about every situation. Okay, so I've gotten the rapport. I'm prepared a bit. And now I need to come to the question that I want to ask. And you and James have a whole lot to say about what we need to do to ask better questions. So mm -hmm. tell us about how we ask better questions. Okay, first is the structure. And second is size. So when you structure the question, um, you want to make sure you use interrogatives. Mm -hmm. And it's who, what, when, where, why, how, how come, because those are questions that invite a narrative response. Can you, will you, invites a yes or no. How much are you going to find out if the person answers only that question? I can. I won't. That's it. You won't know anything else. So use the interrogatives to make sure that you pinpoint the type of information that you're after. After that, make sure that the size of the question is contained. You know, it, it should be this and not way off the map. Because the more you add, the, the more detail and everything you add to the question, the more confusing it can be. And you might not get your answer because you just threw a lot of extra words in there. Yeah, I know sometimes I throw in a lot of words hoping somebody will grab one piece of the question. And I don't care which one it is, just some piece to get us started. All right, fair enough. Who, what, where, when, why, and how... I find many people ask questions that sound more like confirmations, like they're making a statement and they turned it into a question like, can you, or why don't you, or couldn't you, or something. It's a question, but it was really intended as a statement as in, I want you to, and they get short answers. And then you're stuffed with after yes, all you can say is, well, could you tell me a little bit more about that? There's not much to follow up on, and there's not a lot of synchrony or a lot of information that you've gotten out of it. Right. A question is an invitation to another human being to say something. And if you're pushing out a couldn't you, wouldn't you, can you do, you know, that is not an invitation at all. And in fact, it can be confrontational rather than invitational. Okay. I like that. So invitational. All right. Okay. And then size. I want to emphasize this one because I don't want to fill it with a bunch of words. I don't want to add five questions on to the end of it. I want to get it contained around a topic and a thoughtful question. So Marianne, 
Does this mean people need to prep the questions they're going to ask in advance? Or is this something that we get good enough at it that we just kind of do it in the moment? It depends on the person. I think prep is always good. I'm a planner. I like planning. I like preparation, particularly if it's a formal engagement, a job interview, any kind of questioning for a media interview or anything like that. There's a specific purpose for that. But then also with practice, it's some of it comes naturally. Okay. I can't imagine. And I can imagine for most leaders that you're asking some of the same kind of questions over and over again. Let's say I want to know about a reaction to what went wrong on a new product launch, for example. I might be asking multiple people the same kinds of questions mm-hmm. um, in order to understand it. So it's not like I every single conversation I have to prep a new question for as well. And practice will lead to that one, the improving. Right. Although, Wanda, I will say that d- the different person could require a different style. Okay. Some people, um, and I'm going to reference women, a lot of women who are in responsible positions who might feel a bit of imposter syndrome. I mean, even Sheryl Sandberg talked about that. that. Yep. Uh-huh. The imposter syndrome of feeling like, mm, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm doing a good job and I know it, but do I really mm-hmm. deserve to be here? Um, if the if the boss, male or female, happens to know that, know that this is a really competent, great person, you might want to ask a question in a way that you make sure it's not accusing or suggesting in any way that you didn't do it right. You know, just make sure you might frame it with a little praise. That project went great. Now let's look at how we can make it better, for example. Right. Right. Yes. Um, and especially if you're going to ask about what went wrong in a recent time frame, I think framing is essential to keep people from feeling defensive, if nothing right. else. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you said earlier that this notion of uh, confrontational, challenging, pushing people, you know, where do you stand on that? Is that a good tactic? Is that a bad tactic? You know, how? when should we be confrontational, if at all? In professional situations such as the ones we deal with, it almost is never a good idea to go there. Once you start introducing a confrontational element, people will get defensive. They will shut down. They will give you partial answers. They will give you the part of the truth that will please you and maybe soften you as opposed to the entire story. Uh, there will be a a, def- a bit of a defensive mechanism. The spine will tighten, mm-hmm. and you will not get the that full sense of trust. Okay. Great. And presumably, what I'm looking for is people to really be quite honest and quite open with me, because it's in that that they often tell me bits of information that are actually the really insightful components, or the pieces I didn't know before. And so I want people relaxed and in a trustful state so that they're not um, second-guessing their words or being very judicious with their words. Right, right. And in some cases, if a person rambles in response to a question, you might want to pay attention to that rambling and not thinking that you're just getting lost in the weeds because you might hear things that, as you said, 
you might never have expected to know that. And it's important. Yeah, that's an, that is interesting. Sometimes hard to pay attention to all the rambles when I have a theme on my head and I want a particular answer and I'm not getting there. I understand the challenge. But yeah. you right in that rambling, there's often a clue to either a follow-up question or a bit of information that's really right. insightful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I have to ask you while we were on this about confrontation movies, like you always see in the movies or on TV shows, the particular military or um, law enforcement interrogators are really very tough. You know, there's the good guy and the bad guy kind of phenomena that we see in the movies. And it leads, I think, people to believe that interrogation is this, you know, sort of brutal process. Um, so what's your view of that? It's more dramatic. It's cinematically suited. Uh, <laughs> my background is theater. Yeah. So if I were going to write it, I'd write it with the most amount of drama I possibly could. But at the same time, when you look at... Uh, good cop, bad cop kind of scenarios. Some of, sometimes when I'm on a plane, I'll look at the, um, the CSI. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, I really like the female interrogator because sometimes she will just bring the person down to a point where he, he or she does not feel accused, but mm -hmm. rather it's an invitation. Just trust me, talk to me. And that that does work well in that setting. And that that is much more realistic. So that's what interrogators do. Or that's what they're trained to do. Are you? Is they, they are. They are one of the most interesting people I interviewed for a book that I wrote by myself called Nothing But the Truth was a, a, a military interrogator who had a fellow military officer. He was interrogating for a sexual abuse of his own child. And way, the way he built rapport with him, a sense of trust so that he got this guy to confess was amazing to me. Such talent. And he tried to give the man enough dignity to be able to speak honestly. That's a tough thing to do with somebody that you know has abused his own child. Indeed. And especially when you got time pressure. And you're looking for that answer and you have your boss breathing down your neck with, have you gotten it? Have you gotten it? Have you gotten it? Whether it's a confession in this particular case or just information in general. Um, so dignity. You've talked about this and written about this, that the power of respect and dignity when you're asking questions of people is sort of a secret ingredient for finding out the information you want to know. Right, right. Well, any human being... I mean, let, let's let's say there's some level of normalcy as opposed to some com, somebody completely removed from sanity. But with somebody who's somewhat normal, the idea of feeling respected as a human being is fundamental. And in fact, I've talked to psychologists who feel that Maslow's hierarchy is out of whack because what people need most is human connection and respect. Food is fine. Food is good. It keeps you alive, but you don't feel like a person unless right. you have a sense of dignity and, and the respect of others. Yeah. Right. Okay. So if I'm looking for information, the secret, so I've got preparation, I've got rapport. So I build a trustful connection. I've got a little bit of calmness in my approach 
and I'm going to maintain dignity and respect for the person that I'm asking questions of, because that will maintain that human connection and increase the chances that they tell me all that's on their mind, not just the piece of it that I already wanted to hear. Correct. Okay. And easier said than done. I think we've highlighted that one. Okay. All right. I want to shift gears just a tiny bit because it's a sort of an interesting challenge. You said to me that you've had to become an expert on things uh, and you can become an expert really quickly, presumably by asking lots of questions. But could you please explain how you become an expert really quickly on something? Sure. Sure. Well, first of all, let's look at what expertise is. Expertise is a deliberate uh, consolidation of knowledge. It's a deliberate effort to project knowledge. Hmm. So part of that is deliberate, meaning that my focus on lie detection and body language uh, is expertise. Now, my knowledge of French cooking is not. It's random and there are tips here and tips there. Now, let's get to what the second part of expertise is, which is who's listening to you talking. (laughs) So if somebody who knows nothing about French cooking talks to me about it, they might think I went to the Culinary Institute because, you know, I can throw out a bunch of facts. That doesn't make me an expert except to them. I'm an expert to that person. But let's say somebody's really into drag racing and talks to me and I start talking about human behavior and the eyes glaze over. I'm not an expert. I'm a nerd. Yeah. So that (laughs) the two pieces have to be combined in order for you to project real expertise. Now, how to become an expert quickly? You're really good at that because you know how to vet. You have to vet your sources really, really important. You spoke to me last week, you read the book, you know, you, you know what reliable information I have and what I maybe don't have. Okay. And you know what's in the book and what's not covered in the book. Okay. So you've vetted your source. Okay. All right. So it's about, I like this one. I never thought about it this way, that expertise is a deliberate consolidation of knowledge mm-hmm. that I make an effort to know a body and to consolidate it into its core principles or organizing principles, either one. But it's also relative to who's listening, relative to their expertise, but relative to their interest as well. So I love that you distinguish between expert and nerd, depending on whether somebody's interested in the topic or not interested in the topic. Right. And I need to go about vetting the resources, okay, or the sources that I'm going to talk to. Now, particularly today... When lots of people are putting out lots of information, lots of different places, it's pretty hard sometimes to vet sources. Um, Let's say I'm interviewing somebody. It's kind of hard to vet. If I call and ask for a reference, chances are I'm not going to get anything other than just real basic, you know, confirmation Mm -hmm. that they worked here. So any advice on how to vet beyond the obvious? Cross-check your sources. Absolutely cross-check your sources. One source is not necessarily enough. In your case, relative to our conversation, you've interviewed a lot of people who are in a collegial situation with me in terms of human behavior, 
who have complementary knowledge, that kind of thing. So we reinforce each other. If one of us contradicts the other, you know, you might want to check that. Just say, mm-hmm. well, hmm, this other person I respected said this. Why are you saying that? Yeah. Yeah. And and so you do want to do that. And there are there's so many things. I was recently at a museum that mm-hmm. I had gone to when I was 16 years old. That was a really long time ago, I'll tell you that. <laughs> not that long, not that long. I remembered one specific piece of information that a docent had had said. And I was just there, what, last week. And I said, what about that? And he said, somebody made that up. They used to make up stories like that because they thought the tour was more interesting. Now, all of, you know, I cross-checked information, but it was only because all these years, I believed that what I was told was true. So just don't assume. Be a skeptic. Yeah. Once you check the expertise, be a skeptic about everything. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Um, I personally believe that there are ways of identifying information that is less likely to be accurate or that's been made up. I think people have tells in that, not just their body language, but in the way it's structured. Mm -hmm. But there's research yet to be done on that to verify that I'm right about it. So double checking sounds like a really good strategy. Okay, Marianne, this is a perfect time to take a break. Um, When we come back, so my guest today, Marianne Karench, the book we're talking about, Find Out Anything from Anyone, Anytime. I love that one. What a great title. When I come back, I want to talk about those notions about listening, and I want to talk about what if people aren't really answering your questions, and I want to know how to tell if people are not telling the truth. So we'll continue this, and we'll flip the tables and say, what does it mean for you when you're answering a question, when we come right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back to the show. With me today is Marianne Karench, the book we're talking about, Find Out Anything from Anyone, Anytime. And we have been talking about Marianne and James Pyle's book on interrogation and interrogators and the ways in which they go about that, whether that is for your classic sort of military police efforts or whether you're a reporter just reporting, trying to get information out of a source or you're a manager trying to lead and get information about what you're doing with your team or with your organization. It applies in all of those contexts. The highlights are, A, it takes a lot of preparation for you. You do need to know something about the person you're speaking to so that you have a thoughtful way of building a truthful connection so that there is rapport. Then I need a really good question that starts with interrogating words, who, what, where, when, why, or how, not any other words, that's going to allow, it's going to be an invitation for people to say more. When a sentence starts with a yes or no answer, can you, could you, would you, then that's not an invitation to say more. That's just a yes or no, and it doesn't get us a conversation. What we're looking for is a conversation because that's where information is revealed. And the important part throughout all of this, in spite of what you might see in the dramatic portrayals in movies and on TV, is that I want to maintain human dignity and respect, that that kind of bond um, connection that's created keeps that trustful connection going. And that's where people are most likely to tell you the information you really need to know, as opposed to what they think you want to hear. So I want to flip the tables. We're not flip the tables yet. I want to talk about this in terms of listening, because you said earlier that when people ramble, you want to pay attention to the rambling because often there's information in that one. But we're not very good at listening. We listen for what we already know, confirmed what we're already thinking, and then we're off dry, you know, digging into something else new. So talk for a little bit about why listening is so important and how do we get better at it? Okay. We often are so absorbed in our own agendas that we aren't really completely focused on another person. Uh, I really think most people I've ever met fall into that at some point. There is, there is a woman that I know, her name is Nancy, and I swear to God, she is the best listener ever. I never feel like she isn't paying attention with her whole body, that she really is is much more interested in learning what another person has to say than she is in hearing herself talk. That's incredibly rare. Most people feel really good when they're the ones doing all the talking. They feel like that was a great party. That was a great meeting. That was a great interview. And you don't know anything about the other person who was in the room, that it wasn't so great for them. Yeah. So we have to realize that the great has to go two ways. Right. The listening and the talking share. It's a, it's a shared experience. And as I said, listen with your whole body. Actually, it's very energizing. And you're much more likely to be engaged if you're listening for changes in pitch, changes in energy, shift in the body. It's, you know, really looking at the eyes, looking at changes. How is that person changing as that person is rambling, for example? Is is all of a sudden the, the voice speeding up? Like there's more energy behind whatever you're telling me now than what you told me before? 
And I thought you were answering my question before, but really you're much more engaged in, in when you're rambling. So that kind of thing can be very telling. And if we simply pay attention, there you go. Look at the gifts you get. Okay. All right. I think people believe they're listening and what they're doing is hearing, but not processing. Mm-hmm. I watch them do this all the time. The words went in, they last about 30 seconds in their brain and then they're gone. Right. Right. And it's so hard to change that. How do we change that? It, it is. Well, and the worst is for somebody to say, oh, senior moment. No, you just weren't listening. It has <laughs> to do with your age. It has everything to do with the fact that you weren't paying attention. So how, how do we fix that? Uh, we can help others to, by listening to other people, we get them to talk. You know, my friend Nancy, I mentioned, I make I make a point of trying to draw her out, doing what she's doing, which okay. is asking questions and then listening. Because if if you have a sense of reciprocity, you're much more likely to become a better listener. Okay. It's all about that connection. All right. I think somewhere buried in this is not a rush through getting the answer, but a thoughtful question. Mm-hmm. And then a willingness to listen to what is said and what is said behind what is said. So right. the body language, the energy changes, the shift in voice, the emotion that appears, the ramble, the implications of the rambling. I'm like, I'm listening to that whole stream for clues. Right, right. And am I allowed to say that women tend to do this better Am I allowed to say that? Of course you can say that. I, I might differ with you because I certainly see an awful lot of women who could stand to improve this quality. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Yep. Absolutely. At the same time, I'm just looking at my my dearly beloved who sometimes will not want me to ramble. Mm-hmm. Okay. He got his answer. He's mm-hmm. we're done. <laughs> Bless him. He's wonderful. But- don't ramble. Right. Right. And some people I find want that conversation very structured as in one, two, three. Okay. I'm, I've got it. I got my three points. That's it. I can't process anymore. And others are much more tolerant of the roundabout getting to, and some want the details. They don't feel like we've had a real conversation if they haven't been able to tell you all the contextual details that influence a particular right. situation. And that's not gender specific at all. No. Somebody feels that he has something to share that, and it requires a certain amount of detail to get it out. You're going to hear it. Yeah. Sometimes I will confess, um, I just enjoy telling the story in a more dramatic way. And when I do that, I tend to fill in lots of details. Not always the people listening to me appreciate that, however. So, okay. (laughs) So listening is about listening with your whole body and listening to the other person's whole body presumably without divided attention so that I'm actually processing what's said and I'm letting that person go where they want to go. And I'm looking for clues along the way of what's interesting when the energy came through, when their body got more animated, when their uh, pitch of their voice changed, all of those are clues for what might be really important to them. And I might want to ask a follow-on question about and hear. Okay. All right. Now, what if somebody isn't answering my questions? 
Like I'm getting there, I'm asking my interrogation questions, my interrogator words, I'm asking as an invitation, I've built a rapport, but I'm still not getting what I want. What do I do then? Well, look at the reason why you might not be getting the answer. Re-examine your question. So that, that's, a, that's a number one. A number two would be, did the person hear you? Mm-hmm. Is there any reason why the person maybe didn't hear the question properly? Okay. In which case you can say, did you hear me? Or was I speaking too slowly? Or too, I mean, too, too low, that kind of thing. But also look at the body language. If you notice a shift in the body language, in response to the question, maybe a fidgeting or something, then perhaps the person doesn't want to answer the question. Let's say um, you just try to circle back and, and answer it again. Okay, interview, a job interview. And you're looking at a resume and you ask the candidate, I can see that there's an, an eight month gap on your resume. Why is that? And the person might return with, well, that COVID was nasty. Okay, that's not an answer. But you think, well, all right. So you converse about other things and maybe about the last job the person had and then circle back and say, during COVID, I learned how to make French sauces. How did you spend your time? So that's another way of asking the same question. There's a down period. It happens in the pandemic. How did you spend your time? So it could be uh, I I was at home playing video games. Maybe that's the truth as opposed to looking for a job. But if you keep pushing and you're not getting the answer like, oh, I was out trying. I was trying to get a job. Couldn't. Let's say you keep pushing and then you go into what might be rude territory because you keep pushing and pushing. You want the answer. What were those eight months about for you? Then you might notice the person turning away, um, shifting the body away from you or, or turning the eyes away, somehow indicating, I want to get out of this room. I want to get away from you. I don't want to answer this question. At that point, then you know you've hit on a sore spot. And you're now not going to get the answer. You're most likely not going to get the answer. Just drop it. Just drop it. So it's not keep chasing after it until I get the answer. It's recognize that I've circled back. I've asked this in multiple ways. I've given multiple invitations to kind of fill in some components about this gap, for example. And then now the body language is saying, I'm, I'm, le- I'm not focusing on this. I'm not looking at you. I'm turning away from you. I want to get out of here then I, I'm not going to get the answers. I stop. However, if you're a journalist and you have the president of the United States in front of you and you want to know what kind of action we're going to take on inflation, keep asking the question until you get an answer because you deserve an answer. We deserve an answer. Yeah. And I've noticed that politicians are particularly skillful at evading the question and coming back around to something else. So I do notice that journalists keep asking and asking and asking, but there's no guarantee they get the answer they were looking for and an answer to their question. Right. All right. I mean, that's a good example of no rapport. Ah, so I go back to the rapport then again. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Because I think we can all think about journalistic interviews, particularly when it was one-on-one, 
and the um, individual politicians selected that interviewer on purpose, that where we get surprising responses to questions that we wouldn't have expected. And it's partly because rapport is built. So we're right back to that connection and rapport. Okay. All right. So if you're not getting the answer, look at your question. Make sure it's still the right one. It's a good one. Make sure the person understood the question or heard the question. Check out the body language. Is there fidgeting or is there some other shift that would signal that's a place you might want to go back to? Circle back around and ask in a different way without becoming confrontational about it because we've already said confrontational doesn't um, work so well. And when you notice the body language is distinctly turning away from you, you know that that's a sore spot and you're not likely to get a direct answer, at least from a manager with someone that they're talking to around work. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And rebuild the rapport or build the rapport because that increases the chances you'll get an honest answer. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. All right. Now, let me ask this one. How does this help inform us? So all the time, people are going to make presentations to senior leaders, to customers, to a whole, you know, to colleagues, they're making presentations. And I think everyone dreads the questions that come during a presentation, the ones that derail you from your major point, the ones that you weren't quite prepared for, the ones that you didn't really want to ask because you hadn't really quite done that work. You've been talking about how we ask questions and how we interrogate, but does this help us understand anything about how to answer questions? Right. The number one thing is answer whatever you were asked to whatever extent you can. And when you don't know the answer, say, I don't know any more about that. So that that's just a fundamental. Be square about it. And if you start to evade, then you, what you do is possibly trap yourself. Okay. All right. So no fear in saying I'm square about what I know and what I don't know, or I've told you as much as I know about it, Mm -hmm. um, and try to answer as directly as you can for the question that you're asked. Absolutely. Any kind of evasion is disconcerting. It makes another person uncomfortable if, if if they know that you're not giving them an answer. But, you know, that's at the same time. If you give whatever full answer you are capable of giving, then just stop when you're done. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And then stop. All right. I certainly see a lot of people say, I can come back to you. If you need more details on that, I can come offline and bring my expert with me, or I can find information and come back to you. That certainly also works. Sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Fine. Let's, um, I want to shift gears a bit and go back to this whole notion of questioning and the kinds of questions. And partly because I just believe that leaders and managers don't have a good set of understanding how to ask great questions, regardless what the purpose is, whether it's to find out information, whether it's to interview people, whether it's uncover what's gone wrong or whether it's just out of general curiosity for what somebody's thinking about something. So you talk in the book about different types of questions. Can you give me an example? So we've talked about interrogator words to start a question, who, what, where, when, how, why. Um, But you also have this notion of sort of four different types of questions. Can you explain? The, I actually would have to look it up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I mean, 
I didn't write. You can the, skip that one. Yeah, I, I I didn't write the book yesterday, and the truth is, I'd have to look up, you know, what what we said about the, those types of questions. That's all right. We can skip that one. It's not that important right at this moment in time. So I would reference anybody who wants to know more about that. Please check out the book. Find out anything from anyone, anytime. Okay, I want to shift now to one of your favorite topics, which is body language, and we've talked about body language throughout the conversation a little bit. We've talked about mirroring. We've talked about um, shifting attention. We've talked about energy levels. We've talked about when people look down or look away. So this is one of your areas of expertise. Um, so what, do, you know, kind of give us a few highlights of the things you think are most important in paying attention to in body language. Right. Well, now we can go to the types of uh, categories of body language that Greg and I have looked at. And uh, one of the one of the things that you want to be aware of is what we call adapters. Mm -hmm. Adapters are what you might call fidgeting, mm -hmm. things that are self-soothing gestures that people use because for some reason they, they're under a little bit of stress. They're okay. not, not completely relaxed. So I, I can show you one of mine. Okay. One of mine is I rub my thumb. Ah, yes. <laughs> so, you know, everybody has them. Some people are really subtle about them and they're wiggling their toes. In uh -huh. <laughs> Some people, you know, have a pen and they're doing something with the pen. But all of those little things are just a sign of not being completely relaxed. Okay. Pay attention to that, particularly if you're asking a question and all of a sudden you see somebody doing, you know, doing a little gesture like that. Right. Um, another one is um, if you uh, if you are shifting your body language to a closed position, mm -hmm. that you know, say I ask a, a question and the person that I'm asking the question goes from a relaxed position to maybe closing up a bit or turning away, doing something that creates a barrier. So we call that it's, it is, it's, we call it creating a barrier. Okay. It's a kind of wall between the person who's asking the question or the person who's saying something and you, and you want distance. It's a desire for distance. Sometimes people will do that with their phones you know, you'll be talking to somebody and all of a sudden you see the phone kind of go up. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, there's something between you and me now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in contrast to those, which would be suggestions of discomfort. Right. Another type of body language would be just leaning in, just opening up and being completely invitational, uh, wanting to connect, showing um, I'm giving you an unprotected front view of me. This is unvulnerable. And there's a sign of trust there. That's very, very important body language. If you're trying to build rapport with somebody and somebody goes from being closed or turned away to all of a sudden you see them opening up, that's a great big positive sign. Okay. So th those are key things to look for. Just okay the key things to look for in knowing whether or not you're succeeding and connecting with somebody. Right. Great. So adapters, any kind of signal, they're like fidgeting habits almost. I often describe them 
that gestures that we do that kind of calm us down in some ways. And it's a signal that people are not relaxed so that I've not, not put them at ease and I've not made the right connection. I've got moving to a closed position. So closing the body down, turning my head away, looking away, crossing my arms suddenly from open to closed, um, shifting my body away from you are kind of signals of I need distance. I want to move away. I'm not comfortable here. And then the opposite of that is the leaning in, the moving forward, the leaning towards you, the opening your body gestures from closed to more open arms um, is a signal of I'm ready, I'm less protected, and there's more trust, increasing trust. Right, right. And look at how people use objects as well as part of their body language. There are some speakers who can't seem to get from behind the podium. Yeah. And there are some people, some executives, who can't seem to come from behind the desk. They're, all of these things, uh, I'm not criticizing people like that. I'm just saying, if they become aware of it, perhaps they'll realize that they're pro prohibiting a full connection with the person or persons they're trying to, to communicate with. That people subliminally know there's something between you and me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's not energy right i see this marianne in when running classrooms so this is going to sound a little bit crazy everybody runs classrooms where you have a table in front of you so you can write if you want the group to actually open up and talk more honestly with each other take the tables out. It's amazing to me the dynamics that it, and it's inconvenient in lots of ways, but it sure does send a signal about that one. Okay. All right. We have like two minutes before I'm going to stop with you. My last question may be unfair. How do I know if somebody's not telling the truth? Normal people, not pathological liars, mind you, but normal people show stress in some way when they're lying. So that's why you need to pay attention to the body language, pay attention to things like vocalics. So for example, if all of a sudden my voice does this, or uh, you know, some change, some major change in the way I'm expressing myself, you know, the stridency or the pitch change or whatever, those things can indicate that I'm not telling you the truth right now. There's just some, some little thing that is an indication of stress. And in some cases, it's a big thing. Eyes might wander. You know, they'll wander off to one side and you'll say, oh, you used to be looking at me. So those things, I'm not saying that they necessarily are a sign of a lie, but it's a sign of stress. And if you see stress, there might be a lie. It's a possibility. Okay. So there are at least an indication that I might probe a little bit more or ask a little bit more or a double cross check or some version of that. Right. That's all. Okay. Just, just check. All right. Marianne, we are out of time. So my guest today, Marianne Karench, the book that we have been talking about, find out anything from anyone, anytime and co-authored with James Pyle. And as I said at the top of the show, Marianne has written 33 other books, many of them on body language and the human experience, particularly under extreme circumstances. Marianne, thank you for being a guest on the show. What a great conversation. Oh, what a treat it was. Thanks, Wanda. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone. 
thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.